Good morning, Murray Hill. Let's get ready to worship together as we sing to celebrate our Savior. And we want to take, we want to invite you now to heed the words of this song. No matter what you're facing right now, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how down on yourself you may be, you're not anything but what he, you are, what King Jesus says you are.
Good morning. Excited to have you uh, join us. If you are here uh, in the building with us, you guys can go ahead and have a seat. Excited if you're joining us uh, online, uh, that you're here with us this morning, uh, getting to experience this time of worship together. I want to let you know about a couple things happening. Um, If if my daughter Emily comes home from school and she says, Dad, I've got good news and I've got bad news, which one do you want first? Uh, I always ask for the bad news first. So I like to end uh, on a good note. So I'm going to start with the bad news first. Uh, next Sunday, time change. And it, it changes the wrong way. So, so I know this, my wife down here thinks this is a great time change. It's the worst time change um, because we lose an hour of sleep. So um, when you join us, either in the building uh, or, again, join us online, maybe the time change is going to have you running behind. Uh, don't feel like you're going to miss out on the opportunity to connect uh, with your church family because you can also catch us online. But uh, just so you're aware of that time change next Sunday, we also have coming up in a couple weeks, uh, March 20th, we're doing a neighborhood prayer walk uh, on Saturday morning. We meet in the Welcome Center, uh, walk out in the neighborhood, spend some time uh, in prayer for Uh, The streets that we're on, the neighborhood that we're in, ask God to kind of um, lay things on our heart that we can pray for, people we can uh, pray about, sometimes even uh, have the opportunity now as it's becoming uh, better weather to interact with people who are out walking their dog or out uh, enjoying the weather. So definitely want to invite you to join us um, for doing that. Again, that's not this Saturday. It'll be the following uh, March 20th, maybe? Hopefully the slide uh, came up behind me. It's just, just don't come up this Saturday. Not that you can't pray by yourself, but you're going to be praying by yourself. So um, lots of ways for you to give. You can give online. Uh, you can drop, if you're here in uh, the building, you can drop it in the, the baskets uh, on your way out. You can text to give. You can snail mail, check to give. Um, if, if you want to participate with us uh, as we... Uh, Give back to God a portion of what He's given to us. Uh, We're trying to make it as easy for you as possible and as accessible as possible. So uh, we're going to continue singing here uh, in just a second. The next song um, that we're going to sing is called, O Come to the Altar. Uh, And I was reading a little bit about it today. um, And they talked about um, Romans 12 uh, and and what it means uh, to present yourself uh, as a sacrifice, and um, I know different times when I've uh, had the opportunity to speak, I think um, for me, um, the act of a person uh, in Scripture building an altar uh, and what it's there for, um, oftentimes not only just, uh, you know, to, to worship God, but for, for a specific moment in time, uh, for a specific action uh, that God often did on the behalf of His people, um, a place that you can return to, a place that, um, you know, potentially others in your family or others in your people group can return to and remember um, all He has done for us um, and all we know that He will continue uh, to do for us. So I'm going to read Romans 12, 1, uh, and then I would invite you to stand and sing with us. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters... In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Do you thirst for it? 
Heavenly Father, we come before you and we do worship you today. That you are the one who can do the impossible. That you can restore, you can heal, you can renew, you can transform. Father, we thank you that you never stop being God. And we do thank you, as that song said, that even when we don't see it, you're still working all around us. So, Father, we, we thank you for the privilege of being able to experience that even in this life. And, Father, we're so grateful that uh, we can be right with you because of what Jesus did for us. And it's in that wonderful and precious name of Jesus I pray. Amen. Please be seated. So, today we're going to finish First Peter. And uh, just last time, remind you, Peter was in Rome, writing to the churches in Western Europe and Eastern Middle East, encouraging them uh, in their struggle with persecution, trying to help them survive the, the beginnings of persecution, which exploded not long after this uh, in, in major ways, and, and they were giving their lives all throughout the Roman Empire. Um, but, but they were facing this persecution. He wrote this letter to encourage them and then to tell them how to live a holy life in the midst of the persecution. So we began um, in chapter 1. We, we talked about how the thing that should drive us to live a holy life is where we're headed, that there's something much greater waiting for us. And so we, we keep moving forward knowing where the, the end goal is, and that's to be in the presence of Christ for all eternity. Um, and then we, we moved on and we said that we are called to submit ourselves to the authorities, not for our sake, but for the, our king's sake, that he would be honored in that. The third week, we talked about marriage, uh, and we talked about how we treat our spouses affects our prayer life and our relationship with God and, and how important that is. Then we talked about how important it is to love each other as a community of faith and how we are called to that. Um, and then last week, we talked about the joy of suffering for the king. And so today we move into this last section and where Peter talks about, in, in part of it, he talks about the real battle, the real enemy, who it is we're really fighting. So I'm going to read all of chapter 5, um, and we're only going to focus on two verses, but um, let's just read the whole thing just for fun. What do you say? First Peter chapter 5. For you're in the room using the Pew Bible, it's page 1223. 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to read all 13 verses. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness to, of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock, that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Now, verse 7, we're going to talk about today, but it would be a good one to memorize right now. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, which would be Rome, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Okay, so we're going to focus on verses 8 and 9 and, and learn something very valuable for our world today and our reality of, of what we're facing. So in verse 8, he says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls. 
okay? So the words uh, to, uh, to, to be alert and sober mind mean to be focused and clear-headed. And what Peter says is, you need to be focused and clear-headed on who the real enemy is. Who the real enemy is. Your enemy, the devil. Satan. That's the real enemy. And, and I think if Peter would have written it a different way, he would have said to the people, the people persecuting you, they're not the enemy. The governors and the magistrates and the, and the emperor, they're not the enemy. The people who are mocking you or giving you a hard time because of your faith, the, the people that are not doing business with you because of your faith, they're not the enemy. The real enemy is a spiritual enemy. The real enemy is one we can't see. The real enemy is one who works very hard behind the scenes to throw us off track. The real enemy is a spiritual enemy. And I think one of the things we struggle with in our world today is that we forget the big picture. We get so focused on the little battles in front of us that we forget that there's a much bigger war going on. That the real enemy is not the person who has an ideological difference from me. The real enemy is not the person who disagrees with me. The real enemy is not the government. The real enemy is, is not the courts or whatever you want to come up with, whatever politician you think of. The real enemy is not people. It's not ideas and thoughts. The real enemy is a spiritual enemy. And I think we have to reconnect to that reality that there's something much bigger at stake because our lives are first and foremost spiritual. And sometimes we work so hard to fight battles that even if we win, there's really no victory in them because we're focused on the wrong enemy. So this year I'm finishing my 10th academic year over at FSCJ. And if you don't know how this works, college students have a website called Rate Your Professor. And they go online and they, they tell whether or not you're good or bad and whether or not you should take the class and those sorts of things. So I, I tell you that because when I go to class, there are no secrets about me. They have put online everything they know about me, that I'm a pastor and, and my background and I'm a Christian and I'm not ashamed of that, etc. And so what that does is a couple of things. There's one group of, of students who will come because they're believers and they figure it's a safe place to be. There's another group who are agnostic atheists who know from Rachel Professor that it's a safe place to be. But then there's a third group, and they don't come every semester, and it's usually just one at a time. But there's a group of atheists or agnostics who their goal is to come to class and take it and try to embarrass me. Right? I mean, very simply, from day one, you know, oh, that person's here trying to make my life miserable and embarrass me and humiliate me in front of everyone else. Right? So one semester, I had a guy, second day of class, I knew, oh, good grief, this is going to be a long semester. All right? And he's going to ask all kinds of questions to try to stump me and try to embarrass me. And so I need to tell you a little background about me. Um, I really don't like to lose. Okay? If, you, if you don't know that about me, just you, you, you can know that I had a really hard time letting my kids win Candyland. And then at age five, they were on their own. If they beat me five on, it was legit. Okay? And so, um, now granddaughter should probably get up to ten, but we'll see. All right, so, anyway, I, 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 losing is not something I... I take well. So when I get in those settings, I have to be very, very careful because the temptation for me is when someone is trying to embarrass me or, or take me down in front of the class is, all right, let's turn the tables on you, pal, and let's see how you like it, right? That's my first gut response. And I know that about me, so I, I go to class in those semesters, thank, thankfully, prayed up and, and doing my best to submit to the Spirit uh, because if I didn't, it would really be bad, Right? So we were about halfway through the semester, and this guy had been asking questions every day, every day. And so I, I think we were talking about Judaism, and we talked about the creation story. 
And so he had this question all lined up, and the question had to do with um, all of the proof of Darwinian evolution. How can you possibly believe in this creation? So my answer was, and I don't remember exactly what I said, but typically what I'll say is, you know what? There are a couple things. God can create however he wants to. I wasn't there, so he can do it however he wants to. I don't think that he used evolution, but, you know, if he chose to do that, I'm not going to argue with him. Right? I'm not going to lose sleep over that argument. I said the second thing is that the story in Genesis 1, and this is going to make Christians everywhere angry that I say this, but the, the purpose of Genesis 1 was to point out that God did it. It was not to give me a historical record. It was to point out God was behind creation. That was the point. Well, I, I said that, and he got so angry, he took his fist and banged his desk. And he said, he said very loudly, he said, you frustrate me. I was like, I'm sorry, I'm really not trying to. He said, you never answer the questions the way I expect you to. So I finally figured out what was going on is that he had a question that he wanted a specific answer so that he could go on his diatribe and embarrass me, and I never answered the way that he wanted me to answer. At that moment, I had to make a choice. I could turn the tables and choose to embarrass, or I could just let it go. And by the grace of God, because of me, because of the Spirit in me, I let it go. Now, why, why did the Spirit lead me to, to let it go? Because what do I win if I win that battle? I turn a young man away from faith. And I have other people in the class who either be turned away from faith or become more aggressive to those who aren't believers. So you step back and you say, okay, why win this battle? What does the kingdom gain if I win this battle? What does the kingdom gain if I just embarrass this guy to the point he runs out of the classroom? Absolutely nothing. And I tell you that story because so many times we get so caught up in battles that don't matter. We feel better when we win them, but they don't matter. And so Peter is reminding his readers, listen, focus on the real enemy. Yes, it's going to be people that hurt you. Yes, it's going to be people that kill you and throw you in prison. Yes, it's going to be people that do that, but they're not the enemy. That's why Jesus hanging on the cross could say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing because he knew those that killed him were not the enemy. Sometimes we get so caught up in these battles that don't matter at all. And I think we need to be reminded from Peter the, the big picture, right? It's a kingdom battle. That's the one that needs to be won. And in fact, we'll see it already has been won. It already has been won. All right, so, so Peter begins this, and, and, and I think he's saying step back. The, the, the idea is, and, and remember, this is the guy that took out the sword and cut off the guy's ear. Not every battle's worth fighting. And most of them aren't even worth winning. You need to notice the real enemy. So then he goes on and he describes the enemy for us. He says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion for someone to devour. Right? Now, if you haven't figured this out yet, the enemy really wants us to fail. Right? If, if you don't know that, it's true. The enemy desires for us to fail. So to the point that Peter describes him like a devouring lion, right? Do you ever watch the, uh, the shows on TV about nature and they show the different things that happen? Have you ever watched a, a group of lions, a pride, go to eat? You notice what they do? They don't go over the alpha male in the, in the herd that they're chasing. They find the one that they can catch because they want to make sure they eat, right? But they make sure they eat. And so he compares Satan to a lion trying to devour us. Holy cow, that's a pretty descriptive thing. And I think we have to realize that, that yes, the enemy is there, the enemy is real, the enemy desires us to fail, desires us to be chased away from the faith, desires us to lead other people away. The enemy has this great drive to see us run away from God. 
and to put our trust in other things. So the enemy is working tirelessly to win victory in our life. But you know what I've noticed about the enemy? Is the enemy doesn't attack when my spiritual life is really good. Because the enemy's really smart. The enemy doesn't attack when I'm so close to God that sin's not even an option on my plate. The enemy attacks when all the defenses are down. And in fact, what I've discovered in my own journey is the enemy is so smart is the enemy doesn't try to take you from point A to point Z. The enemy tries to take you from A to B. In other words, he doesn't wake you up in the morning and say, all right, let's go steal a car today. Because we'd say, what? Doesn't fit. He may start, hey, you know, let's cheat on the taxes here. Nobody will ever catch it. We give in and we find ourselves taking baby steps away and baby steps away until all of a sudden we're doing something we thought we would never, ever do. He's smart like that. And when we do things like that, we mock the faith for the world. So, I was reminded of the story of Solomon. Solomon was known as the wisest man to ever live. And you read some of the stories, they are very impressive. But one of the things that the law taught was that uh, God said, one day you're going to have a king. And when you have a king, don't let him have many wives. Because if he has many wives, they will lead him astray to worship foreign gods. Well, I don't know how many, many wives is, but Solomon had 700 of them. So I'm going to guess that's a many, Right? I don't know anybody else thinks, but 700 sounds like an awful lot. Now, the reason he had 700 wives is because he was the most powerful man in the world, and kings from foreign lands would come and say, hey, I want to give you my, my daughter as a wife, and that way you won't attack me, and we'll be allies and friends, and, and we'll get along fine. And so he ended up with 700 wives. Oh, I see men shaking their heads. It's like, okay. That's a lot of anniversaries to remember, okay? A lot of birthday presents, a lot of Christmas cards, whatever. 700 wives. But you read the story of Solomon, and it's interesting. He didn't wake up the day after he became king and start worshiping foreign gods. Instead, he started marrying all of these wives, and they began to bring all of their foreign ideas in. And, and somehow along the way, Solomon, in all of his wisdom, decided that it was a good idea to please the wives by worshiping their gods with them. And again, it wasn't that he woke up at the beginning of his reign and said, hey, I'm going to go worship these foreign gods, even though God's been so good to me. It's like the enemy said, hey, one more wife's not going to hurt. I mean, you've only got 352. Why not have 353? It's not a big deal. You've got 475. Why not 476? It won't make a difference. And over time, Solomon began to compromise. He began to compromise. He began to compromise until finally the enemy pounces and says, I have the wisest man ever worshiping a false god. I win. See, I, I think we have to understand the enemy is smart, the enemy's brilliant. And the enemy works very well behind the scenes to move us just steps away from God today, another step tomorrow, another step tomorrow until it's like, oh my goodness, look what I've done. Something I never thought I would even contemplate doing. That's how the enemy works. So the enemy's real, the enemy drives us away from God, the enemy drives us to, to lead other people astray. Have you noticed in the headlines recently how many big-name religious Christian leaders have fallen? It's been crazy. And one of them, we didn't know that he fell until after he died. And the impact he had was so huge. How did he get there? How did a guy that had all of the answers when he stood before a crowd... I mean, really, had all the answers. How did he live that kind of life in the background? 
It wasn't one day he woke up and said, I'm going to do it. He slowly moved away in his relationship with Christ. So we begin by acknowledging the fact that there is an enemy. The enemy is real, and the enemy is trying to destroy us. But I think there's one thing that we're really missing in our culture, in the Christian culture here today, and it's this, and it's in verse 9. Peter says this, Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. One of the things that we don't realize about the enemy is the enemy is very defeatable in our lives. Peter says you can resist him. Not on your own power, not on your own ability, but the Spirit of Christ lives in you. You have the ability to resist the enemy and find victory. You can stand firm against him. Because what Jesus did on the cross won the victory for us. And the Spirit of Christ is in us. And so we can find victory even when the roaring lion attacks And I think we forget, now now don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying that the enemy should be ignored. Because the enemy is powerful. But here's what we learn in the book of Job on Wednesday nights, is the enemy can do nothing unless he's given permission. He can do nothing unless he's given permission. So you think about that, and you think, you know, if that's really true, then the reality is, is that God will not let anything happen to me, and he will not give me the ability to overcome if I trust. That's powerful. But you see, the, the Hollywood has convinced us that Satan is so powerful and, and so incredible, and he can do all of these things and scares us and terrifies us to death. We worship the one who beat him. Victory's already happened. But yet the enemy doesn't ever quit. About seven or eight years ago, and I say seven or eight years ago, it may be 15. I don't know if the rest of you, when you get older, all the years run together. I think it's seven or eight years ago that we're going to assume that it is. All right? Let's just pretend it's seven or eight years ago. Can we agree to do that? So seven or eight years ago, I was getting ready to come to work, and, and I was shaving and uh, my wife had already gone to work, and, and I was halfway through shaving. And there something happened to me that's never happened before or happened since. There was this overwhelming dread and doubt in my life. I stopped shaving. I look in the mirror. I look in my own eyes. And out loud, I say to myself, oh, my gosh. What if the whole thing's a lie? What if it didn't really happen? What if I've spent my life chasing after and encouraging people to chase after something that's not real? Oh, man, I was devastated just like that. Don't even know where the thought came from. Kind of do. But it just showed up. And I looked in the mirror and I said, Lord, This is really scary for me. I need your help. I need your help. So I went in, half-shaven, sat on the sofa, and if you had walked in, you would just see me staring into space. And it was like, Lord, I don't know what to do. Is all of this real? Please help me. And I began to have a calm, not peace, but just a calm. So I was, I was led internally by the Spirit. Start thinking about what you know to be true. I was like, okay. And, and this is the internal dialogue that was going on. Okay, so here's what I know. In science, they have what they call the law of causality. And everything has a cause. And so 
If one thing has, a, has something that caused it, there was something that caused it, and something that caused it, and something that caused it. But in the law of causality, it can't go, go eternally backwards. It's impossible. So that means that somebody or something at the beginning had to start the process. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? So there's an oak tree. It started when another oak tree had a had, had a, a nut go into the ground, right? And there was a tree before that, a tree before that, a tree before that, and then you go backwards. Well, in causality, everything has a cause, but they can't go eternally backwards. There, there had to be something that started the process, right? And uh, some, some prime mover, as Socrates called it, had to be something that started the process. So I, I knew that was true, and so I began to think, okay, something or someone started the process. It had to be God. You look at the universe and you look at the order and this didn't just some knucklehead push a button and start. I mean, this was all on purpose. I was like, okay. All right, I know that to be true. But then the, the the doubts came again. Well, what about this God and all that he had people do in the Old Testament? You, remember, you know, he had him kill all these people, he had him do all these things, and I was like, oh, man, what's going on? And then all of a sudden, in my brain, the words, there's an empty tomb. What do you know about the empty tomb? It's like, Okay. I know that the tomb is empty, and I know that it's empty for one of three reasons. One, they could have got the wrong tomb. But that's really illogical when you think about it, because on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 Jews became followers of Jesus, and the religious leaders would have said, wait a minute, you knuckleheads went to the wrong tomb, his body's over here. And they didn't do that. It's like, okay, so that's not realistic. The second possibility is that the disciples stole the body. And somehow, after Jesus died, they got together and said, all right, guys, here's the plan. We're going to steal the body, and we're going to pretend like this is true. And we're just going to act like it's a, it's a really cool thing, and, and we're going to have this party. But in Acts 6, Stephen gets stoned, and I guarantee you that movement dies at that moment. Because these guys were cowards just a few chapters earlier. I would have been too. I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying these cowards all of a sudden decided, I'll die for this story. Now, people die for false things all the time, but they don't die for false things they know are false. It's like, okay, that's not the possibility then. So the third possibility is something supernatural happened. That's got to be it. The tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. And all of a sudden, this incredible peace overcame me. I know there's a God. I know the tomb is empty. I know Jesus is alive. And I stood up and said, too bad, Satan. The tomb's empty and you lost. I went and finished shaving, got ready, and came into office. It's a day that it was so real to me and so powerful that it's like it happened yesterday. And it may have been 15 years ago or seven or eight years ago. I don't know. But it was a long time ago. Here's what I want you to hear me say. There's nothing the enemy can do to you that our God's not greater than. No matter how horrible you may think the enemy is, no matter how powerful you think they are, no matter how powerful you think he is and, and all the destruction he can bring in your life, he can do nothing without permission, number one. And number two, the victory's already happened. Because that tomb is empty. And I don't have to live in fear. You know, I think that's what Peter was telling the people. I said, listen, there's some hard times coming. And boy, were they hard times. I mean, they were unbelievably difficult. So there's some hard times coming. But no matter what they throw at us, guess what? We've already got victory. And even if our lives are required of us, we've already got victory. So be encouraged today. Be encouraged with this reality that Jesus did everything and has given you everything you need to have spiritual victory in your life over the enemy. Everything. And it's available to you right now.
But here's the thing. The reason the enemy wins victories in our lives is because we start taking days off from faith. We don't hang out in prayer. We don't study scripture. We don't worship. We don't meditate. We don't do all the things we know we're supposed to do because things start going good and we take it all for granted. Then the enemy starts to prowl. You have the capacity and the ability to resist because of who lives inside of you if you'll just submit yourself to him. Because the victory is already yours. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you that whatever description of the enemy the world may give to me, it makes no difference because you've already won. And Father, I pray if there are people in this room or people watching who are going through a spiritual battle that is so powerful and so real right now that you just set them free. I pray that you let them see in you the victory that has already happened, that they will be reminded of an empty tomb that allowed the Spirit of Christ to live inside of them. They don't have to live in fear anymore. Lord, give them strength. Give them perseverance. Help them resist the enemy. And Father, we thank you that you have made available for us everything we need to live the life you've called us to live. Now, Father, as we come to this point, I I just pray that your spirit would open our hearts and our minds to you. I pray that souls would be transformed this day. I pray if there's anyone that needs you, that today for them would be a day of salvation. And it's in that wonderful and precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So this morning, I want to ask you a very simple question. Why is the tomb empty? It's pretty well documented historically. There's an empty tomb. Now, you can believe they got the wrong tomb. You can believe the body was stolen. You can make up some other story. But but what if? What if there's an empty tomb because God did something supernatural? What if Jesus conquered death? That changes everything. And he won the victory over death for you and for me. I mean, it's a great story at Easter, and we'll talk about it again then, but why did that happen? so that God could do the impossible for us and do for us that which we could never do for ourselves. And if you're here today and you've never asked Jesus into your life, please know that that empty tomb story, it was done for you. It was done for you. And so if you've never asked Jesus to be a part of your life, we invite you to do that today. Invite you to come before him and acknowledge the, the fact that you have sin in your life that separates you from him. Acknowledge the fact that you need him and you need not only his forgiveness, but you need him to be the center of your worldview, the center of your life. And if you're here today and you know that God is calling you to do that, please respond to him. It's the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. So in just a minute, we're going to sing, and as we sing, if you would like to make that decision, I invite you to come to the Welcome Center, and let's talk about that and what it means and what it looks like. Or maybe you're watching online, you can text us, or you can email us, but respond to him. The greatest call, the greatest gift in all of life. Maybe you're here today, you're watching today, and you're already a follower of Jesus, and God has put it on your heart that you need to be officially a part of this community of faith invite you to follow up on that when we're done. If you're here, come to the Welcome Center. Let's talk about that online. Same thing, you can text or email. Or maybe today, like so many Christians, you realized you've been living in fear of an enemy who's already been defeated.
pray today that God would allow you to experience victory and peace today because of what he's done. We're going to stand and sing, and you respond as you feel led as we worship together. So, you know a teacher can't miss a moment. I just want to let you know one thing. The way in the animal kingdom that, that you avoid the prowling lion is you live in packs, and you live in groups, and you live in flocks. So, I don't want to just one more time, both in the building and online, let you know this is a body of believers 
who are open and accepting and want to walk alongside you to help each other out and to try each day to become more Christ-like. We love you. We're excited that you're joining us each morning. I hope you guys have a great week.